Hey everyone, I'm Jacob. I'm Gabriel. I'm Aranya. We're the intellectuals. These are the issues. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode. Yes, 10th episode of the Intellectuals Present Colon Tackling the Issues podcast. Today we are here with special guest Surav. Hello. Uh, and today we'll be discussing gene editing. What is it? Why is it relevant? Uh, pros and cons, ethical questions, etc., etc. So I'm just going to get Aranya to start us off. Uh, so <clears throat> the biggest question is what exactly is gene editing? Now, uh, as we all know, gene editing is quite literally editing genetic information. It is quite literally breaking into our cells or any cells, changing the information in the DNA inside, which encodes for everything which we have uh, in our bodies, all of our characteristics or any animal's characteristics or the cell's characteristics and changing it in a way that we see fit. Uh, gene drive, uh, sorry, gene therapy has always uh, existed in the form of uh, artificial selection, uh, but that took uh, hundreds of years. And more recently, we have developed faster uh, treatments. Um, and even more recently, something called uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which allows us to change genes in within uh, weeks and at a fraction of the cost as it was before. So, uh, Surav, as you have a particular interest in gene therapy, uh, we'd like you to start us off. Well, making reference to the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, we've actually had a number of very interesting uh, discoveries with CRISPR-Cas9 recently. So obviously, CRISPR-Cas9 is a very uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is a very recent development. So before CRISPR-Cas9, we didn't really have a mechanism by way to edit genes within an actual living person. So perhaps using viral vectors or other methods, we could have edited the genomes of, let's say, germ cells, like egg cells, or sperm cells, or maybe even a zygote. But we could never do this on a larger scale within a human. So CRISPR-Cas9, due to, due to the way it's built to edit genomes, is able to do this on a larger scale than ever before. But CRISPR-Cas9 doesn't necessarily come without its issues, and there are quite a few. So one of the primary, one of the primary issues of CRISPR-Cas9 at the moment is the fact that it comes from a very, very, let's say, populous bacteria, a bacteria that most of us have been infected with before in our lifetime, and that is staph, staph bacteria. And the issue with this is that we're actually, around 90% of the population is immune to CRISPR-Cas9 therapy because our body can recognize the CRISPR-Cas9 complex and inhibit it and stop it from working, because obviously you don't want bacterial agents functioning in your body. Uh, so just for those who uh, aren't completely aware or who may not have heard of CRISPR-Cas9, the way CRISPR-Cas9 works actually is that it, uh, we found it, we discovered it uh, in bacteria. We discovered it uh, when viruses were attacking bacteria. The bacteria's defense was to produce a CRISPR-Cas9 uh, complex, which found the viral DNA and destroyed it so that the virus no longer attacked the bacteria. So once humans found this, we managed to engineer the uh, bacteria to produce CRISPR-Cas9 whenever we wanted it, and even specify which type of gene we wanted it to destroy, or yeah, which, which we wanted to destroy. So when Surav says that staph bacteria are the most common uh, users of CRISPR-Cas9 and that we are immune to Cas, uh, staph bacteria, it means that we essentially, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 does not work on humans as well as it would on, uh, say, animals or single individual cells. 
Um, even though this technology hasn't been fully fleshed out for humans, um, in May 2019, regulations uh, had to be drafted that anyone manipulating the human genome by gene editing techniques like CRISPR would be held responsible for any related adverse consequences. And this was all propagated by the Hejankui affair. I hope that's how you say it. Uh, this affair is a bioethical issue concerning the use of gene editing, uh, gene editing techniques in human cases after the aforementioned scientist made the first genome-edited babies in 2018. The twin babies, named Lulu and Nana, had their DNA modified using CRISPR-Cas9. The twin girls had their CCR5 gene modified in an attempt to, con in an attempt to um, add HIV resistance. This was conducted in secrecy until MIT Technology Review ran a story on the experiment. It received widespread criticism and the Chinese government suspended all of his research activities. Another measure that was taken in response was also the World Health Organization launching a global registry to track research on all human genome editing after a call to halt on all work on all work on genome editing in 2019. I just think that it's important to take a, a step back and uh, look at the uh, CRISPR scandal that was created by He Jiankui, I think. He Jiankui. He Jiankui. Uh, and it was called profoundly disturbing and horrifying and the reaction was swift and negative. So while you can look at the positives of gene editing and the positives of gene editing can very easily be seen in things like golden rice, which have been, uh, which are grown in uh, countries in Southeast Asia where rice is more common and it's filled with uh, vitamins and faster growing speeds. This is why it's sometimes called yellow rice because of the yellow tinge that the gene editing gives to it. And you look at other successful examples that produce high yield crops, uh, resistant crops to increase yield and prevent famines and, and uh, things like that. But uh, uh, the worrying thing about gene editing is the uh, potential for disasters like these to happen. Uh, one of the overlooked, not overlooked, but quickly emerging uh, sectors of gene therapy is actually called gene drive. Uh, while this does not have uh, quite as immediate of an impact as uh, inc increasing agricultural yield or changing uh, aspects about the human body, it is undeniably a very, very useful tool which hopefully we can uh, harvest over time. So I'd like to talk about something called Project Needlenose. Um, in 2016, researchers decided to try to eliminate uh, the malaria uh, plasmodium from a certain species of mosquito. Uh, this is done through the use of CRISPR-Cas9. What they did was they used uh, CRISPR-Cas9 to target plasmodium uh, cells within the, uh, within the mosquito and have it completely eradicated. Um, this is done through editing the genes of the mosquito to no longer produce a, a sustainable biosphere, if you will, for the uh, mosquito, for the plasmodium virus inside of the mosquito. So the plasmodium, which causes malaria, would not be able to live within the mosquito as well, at all, so it could not be used as a vector for transmission. Uh, this led to an interesting thing where uh, they created mosquitoes which were completely malaria-free, which meant that if we introduce them into the wild, they could possibly breed with other mosquitoes and pass down those genes. The problem with that was that, obviously, uh, 
due to the laws of inheritance and how um, genes are inherited, there was only after a hundred generations of flies, only two percent of all flies, uh, mosquitoes, sorry, would have that gene. So they used a method called gene drive, which forces the gene, which codes for um, creating the unsustainable habitat for the uh, malaria of, uh, plasmodium. They forced that to become a dominant gene, a dominant allele, which meant that almost all, I think it was 99.8% after the 100 generations, uh, almost all mosquitoes would have the gene which prevented them from uh, sustaining plasmodium viruses, which means that gene drive combined with CRISPR-Cas9 would produce a, a ecosystem of completely uh, plasmodium-free, malaria-free mosquitoes, which could be unbelievable, uh, could drastically reduce the 500 million deaths per year, sorry, 50 million deaths per year from malaria, which um, undoubtedly in the future could save countless lives. Um, as Aranya has mentioned previously, uh, gene drive would alter the probability that a specific allele will be transmitted to the offspring. However, gene drives do have limitations, mainly that currently they are only possible in sexually reproductive species, and they also come with their own risks. Um, while they may only be intended for local populations or specific species or genuses, uh, the gene drive could spread to the entire species as well as other animals through unintended contact or transport, and many studies have suggested that this is likely to occur. There's also the concern of the ethics relating to gene drives and how, and how, many, re and how and many research centers have argued against their use, say for extremely hazardous populations or in, or in isolated islands. Now, other proposals of gene drives have been to alter fertility rates of invasive species, removing herbicide and pesticide resistance. This could not only have the effect of improving the efficiency of such uh, pesticides, but also serve to lower low environmental costs and stuff like that. So it has other positive benefits, but also it also causes negative unintended consequences. So yeah, <clears throat> when addressing technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 or gene drive, it's always important to remember that these technologies are giving humans a power that is unprecedented, something that's never been seen before by humanity and something that's almost infringing on a power people used to think was something only controlled by God himself. So when we think about using this to our advantage, we should always be very careful. If you look at, for instance, science in China currently, for instance, there was the example with the uh, twins born using CRISPR-Cas9 edited genomes. China has a history with very ethically dubious experimentation. And frankly, in a world like what we have now, where ethics are strongly established, at least at that base level, gene editing throws nearly everything into the deep end, and it creates a huge gray area where a lot of people aren't entirely sure what to do. What do we do now that we have the ability to edit genomes? Should we use it to remove cystic fibrosis from the population? Is this the only thing we can do? Can we then remove colds? Can we remove disadvantageous features like for instance being below the average height or being or having gigantism at some point when does this turn into eugenics rather than simply research for the for the greater good so an interesting corollary to what Saurav just said is uh, the use of detection of 
uh, uh, Down syndrome. So in Europe, at least uh, from the data that I've gathered, in Europe, when a pregnant mother is found to have a child with Down syndrome, in 96% of cases, the child is aborted. Now over here, uh, we'd like to stress that the decision to abort a child uh, is very, very personal one. We do not hold any, we will not state our preference, uh, our views on this topic, but the choice is clear. The statistics are clear that more and more people are choosing to um, sort of choose a better life for their child and choose decisions that are already you know dependent on whatever the genes are we are already choosing things based on genetics um, using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to improve our genetics would almost be a natural step forward from here we're already choosing uh, not to have children because of certain traits uh, certain features uh, certain uh, diseases so as long as progress is um, mediated as long as it is over uh, overseen by a proper review board and as long as everything is ethically viable and stable um, I see no reason to stop CRISPR-Cas9 progress and stop uh, using this absolutely essential and uh, game-changing tool. Uh, but then again when you mean progress do you mean should we look uh, should we raise the floor or should we start trying to raise the ceiling? Because should we, should we focus on curing diseases, removing harmful characteristics, or should we try to improve trivial changes or to make people better than they already are? This has, like, while many would say that the ethical route is to uh, raise the floor, it's, gonna, it's kind of obvious that at some point many rich people will find a way to improve their own body, and this will cause... So that not only do we have inequality in wealth or in position, we're going to have inequality in just in people themselves. I think it's interesting to note that it's a very, it's become a very difficult thing to regulate, and it is a difficult thing to regulate. Eugenics are very dangerous, and you look at plastic surgery. Plastic surgery is definitely not as drastic as eugenics. Uh, can be seen to be, but uh, plastic surgery is definitely uh, difficult to, um, it's difficult to say how plastic surgery and eugenics, where the line is. So people who have Botox lips and uh, get facelifts and things like that, aren't they already changing their body? And where does that become different to eugenics? But then I guess you need to remember that Sure, there are, there are like really insignificant things like let's say the way your face looks or how full your cheeks are or whatever you can change with plastic surgery. But then drawing the line between that and let's say editing your genome so you can run a little bit faster. Maybe your cells have more mitochondria so they produce more ATP. So the, drawing the line along that route is very difficult and that's the reason why this should be really well regulated at the very beginning to things I would say limited to raising the floor as Jacob said rather than raising the roof. Uh, one, one more perhaps vital aspect of regulation is uh, the use of CRISPR-Cas9 or any other gene editing systems to produce a super state. Now what do I mean by this? Well, we do have some violent, troubled uh, areas such as North Korea, such as uh, Sudan, who have uh, rulers who are perhaps a bit too power hungry, who desire a little bit too more than what is worth their share. Now, since gene editing has become so widespread, so cheap, so fast, thanks to CRISPR-Cas9, 
uh, rulers like this can perhaps see this as an opportunity to improve their entire country um, by the person, by the cell. For example, perhaps not in the far future or very near future, we don't know at this point, uh, North Korea gains hold of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology through some way and starts using it to, con to uh, change their entire uh, economy, to change, uh, to produce uh, fitter, healthier, uh, longer-lasting, smarter uh, human beings uh, for the next generation. So children are, can be bred almost from a very early age into becoming the perfect super soldier for North Korea or the perfect analyst or the perfect uh, war general. And this sort of dystopian future is almost similar to that of Aldous Huxley's book, uh, which dictates that almost every single person down to their very atom is designed for a specific purpose, which is almost a really dystopian future, something that I personally would not want to live in. I would want to be free to make my own choices at the very least. So we have to prevent this. And as Saurav said, this starts with early regulation, making sure that people are only using it for uh, board-reviewed ethical purposes. I think another issue that we've briefly touched on is when we've talked about how plastic surgery can alter the appearance. Well, if people resort to using gene editing to do that, we have to remember that it's also a generational thing. This will be passed on to their children and, they, and to their children and so on. So we have to ask if does one person in their family, should they have the right to change the, to change the characteristics for their future generations? Uh, but on that note, um, you also have to consider the fact that the younger generations will also have that choice to change their genomes in the same way their parents may have done. And especially if it's not a germline, a germline edit. So if they're specifically editing features they already have or cells that are already in their face, then there's no issue for the children. I guess, yeah, there would be a huge issue if you were to start editing the germline itself. And then there's the ethical question of what, how much does a parent get to decide of what they pass on to a child. Traditionally, you've never been able to decide stuff like that for your child. And potentially, you shouldn't be able to decide stuff like that because it's frankly not part of a decision we should be making. But now that we have gene editing technologies, nothing, or now that we're developing them and are potentially close to a solution which we can use them, nothing like this is set in stone. There is no one trait that you may pass on to your children that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. You never know. Potentially we could, we could have generations where people change their hair color on a whim and say, this weekend I want to go for a party, but it's only for people with green hair. I'm going to change the amount of melanin in my hair and do just that. And we're reaching a future where stuff like this may just be possible. Nothing that we pass on to our children will be permanent. And so we're, def we're changing the entire definition of what it means to reproduce as a race. Um, thank you very much uh, to the panel uh, for uh, all these um, excellent ethical questions and definitely a lot to consider here for sure. Uh, thank you, Surav. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this has been Gene Editing and CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, we're the intellectuals and we're done here. <laughs>